from deep inside your audio device of choice. Ladies and gentlemen, it, uh, it probably isn't the biggest news where, where you are if you're in the United States. There's, uh, there's a lot of news that you, we in the United States aren't really fully caught up on. You may have noticed this from time to time. Stuff going on in Libya. Yeah, Libya. Libya, Libya. Libya, the tattooed nation. There's uh, stuff going on in uh, China. China! There's, but um, here in London, whence this program is originating this week, all that stuff, even even the news of the impeachment of <laughs> President, uh, what is it, Trump, um, fades, fades into the background, fades into the unfocused background to make way for Harry and Meghan, Prince Harry and, uh, I guess, Princess Meghan. They have, uh, as a result of a decision made by the Queen... Her Majesty, the Queen, Friday afternoon, London time. They are uh, no, no longer performing royal duties. No longer his and her highnesses, but they're not his and her lonenesses either. I guess they're, you have to imagine where they fit on that scale. And um, they're going to pay back the money for the refurbishment of their cottage. They call it a cottage. It's a mansion. But, you know, you wouldn't serve mansion cheese, would you? So that that appears to take care of the official side of things. But um, they're going to be spending a lot of time in Canada. The, the, the whole thing happened because Meghan and Harry, Prince Harry and uh, Princess Meghan, wanted to have a more nearly normal life. And the whole royal thing is about as abnormal as you can get. So they were they were looking to just sort of ease off. And the Queen said, there's no easing. There's just off. And as I say, they're now going to be spending... Did I say it? They're going to be spending a lot of time in Canada. um, Because, you know, Canada. And uh, so the speculation is, well, you know, they're not going to be doing royal stuff. So maybe there'll be less press attention. There was certainly... uh, It's inarguable that they received an awful lot of press attention. And... uh, in Prince Harry's mind, uh, there were unavoidable echoes of uh, the press attention that was lavished upon his mother, his late mother. So that uh, the question is, are they going to be able to escape that in Canada? Well, there's less press, of course, but, um, you know, they're going to have to make some money. They are no longer on the royal payroll. And um, people are now wondering what, you know, how they are actually going to monetize um, their reputations as um, former members of the royal family. There may be, you know, some uh, advertising deals in the offing. Hello, I'm Harry, but you can call me Prince. When you need a plumber, you need him fast, you need him good, and you need him affordable. That's why I'd like to tell you about my friends Jim and Jason at Not Quite Royal Plumbing. You know, stuff like that. Um... But to make money, you still have to be in the public eye if you're them. And he's, he's not going to be the plumber. He's going to be adver- So there is now speculation that they're going to need 
security, even in Canada, uh, for the foreseeable future. And who's going to pay for the security? The British taxpayers? The, uh, Prince Charles? Their dad? His dad? Um, it's, it's, um, it's just a puzzlement. And uh, so I, as an American, want to uh, offer whatever services I can uh, in connecting them, influencing some folks along the way, to uh, reach the solution, I think, is the practical, maybe the only practical solution to the problem, and enroll them in the Witness Protection Program. Hello, welcome to the show. People were proud in double back alley. Neighbors were loud, but ever so pally. People would shout, joking about the smoke and the soot. From just around the corner from Double Back Alley here in London, England, I'm Harry Shearer welcoming you to this edition of Le Show. And uh, a couple of weeks late, uh, our remembrance of the passing of uh, the great Neil Innes from the, uh, from the Ruddles, as well as the Bonzo Dog Band. And now, ladies and gentlemen, news of our friend the Adam. Clean, safe. 
Oh, it's too, too everything to do anything. The total cost to implement government-mandated safety measures, we're, we're in Japan now, journalistically speaking, maintain facilities and decommission commercially operated nuclear power plants in Japan. The total costs, about $123 billion. B is in bagel dollars, according to a Kyoto News survey released this week. The amount which could balloon further, balloon to more billions, and eventually lead to higher electricity fees, eventually, really, was calculated based on financial documents from 11 power companies that own 57 nuclear reactors at 19 plants, as well as interviews with the utilities. I don't know how you interview a utility. I guess you plug in. Two two years after the Fuk crisis, the Japanese government introduced new safety standards, never too late, which made measures against natural disasters and major accidents mandatory for restarting reactors. Power companies were given the option of either maintaining their idled nuclear plants and uh, restarting them once they'd implemented the, the safety measures or decommissioning the plants. But either choice required massive costs. Calling Mr. Hobson. Of the total cost, $49 billion was for safety measures implemented as of last month at uh, 15 power plants that are trying to restart. Decommissioning costs for 17 reactors, too expensive to implement safety measures for, about 49... 40, Sorry, about $7.7 billion. I was looking at the yen figure for a moment. I, I, had, I, had, I had a yen. As the estimated cost for decommissioning the four reactors at Fuke differ, they were not included in the figure. See? See how they did that? Maintenance costs, will, which will not only apply to restarted plants in operation, but also to idled ones and those in the process of being decommissioned, are required for 54 reactors at 17 plants. And the total cost could further rise by several hundred, sorry, several billion dollars as money needed to construct anti-terrorist facilities, also required under the new safety standards, wasn't included in some of the company's figures. So we'll be just just adding, we'll just be topping up that figure a little bit. Too, Too expensive to start up, too expensive to decommission. So... And too expensive to leave them just sitting there. Tokyo Electric, Electric Power Company says coolant has... I'm going to uh, back up on this story for a moment just to remind you where it comes from. They were going to build an ice wall in the uh, soil around the Fuke plants that was going to trap water from leaking out of the uh, cooling facilities and getting to the ocean. The ice wall... Has sprung, a, has sprung leaks. Coolant has seeped out from an underground frozen soil wall built around the crippled Fuke plant. This is according to NHK. The frozen soil wall came into operation four years ago, was built to keep groundwater from flowing into reactor buildings and then getting contaminated. TEPCO says it found coolant leaking at three locations from components that connect pipes in the wall. The company had noticed a reduction in coolant in its tank earlier this month. Hmm wonder how that happened. Went searching for the cause. Leaks! Hey, hey, Mo, it's leaks! TEPCO says it believes 20,000 liters, 5,200 gallons of the coolant has leaked, but that this will not affect the operation of the wall. Well, why should it? It's just leaking. The company says it will replace the components on the, in the wall 
and repair another leak that was found in December. But that shouldn't affect the ability to get other leaks. Clean, cheap, too leaky to, to fix. Our friends, our friend, the atom. But there's a million of them, so I'll, I'll use the plural if I damn please. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we have uh, news of the land of 15,000 princes, our freedom-loving friends in Saudi Arabia. Saudi authorities have carried out a sweeping campaign of repression against independent dissidents and activists, including two waves of mass arrests. That happened last year, according to Human Rights Watch. The arrests and harassment coincided with the most significant advancements for Saudi women in recent years. So you give some, you lose some. Reforms for Saudi women do not whitewash the rampant harassment and detention of Saudi activists and intellectuals, including women's rights activists who simply express their views publicly or privately, said Deputy Middle East Director at Human Rights Watch. If Saudi Arabia has any hope of rehabilitating its tattered image, he says, his name is Michael Page, if you want to write him, the authorities should immediately release everyone they've locked away merely for their peaceful criticism. Unquote him. Saudi leaders, including Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, not smoked, faced no meaningful justice last year for abuses by state security agents, including the murder of the journalist Jamal Khashoggi Khashoggi, in October 2018 and the alleged torture of women's rights advocates. Dozens of Saudi dissidents and activists remain in detention while they and others face unfair trials on charges tied solely to their public criticism of the government or peaceful human rights work. Sounds nice there, doesn't it? It's a cruel irony that Saudi women are enjoying new freedoms while some of those who fought hardest for them remain behind bars or facing blatantly unfair trials, said the fellow from Human Rights Watch. Well, stop watching. And Saudi Arabia executed a record number of prisoners last year, according to a report from the legal charity Reprieve, which monitors official executions. A total of 184 executions, including 90 foreigners. Nearly 140 were executed for smuggling narcotics or committing murder. This is uh, 40 more people, approximately, than was executed the year before. So we're making progress. Reprieve says four people have already been executed this year. Now you're talking. The Saudi government officially announces executions. Amnesty International has condemned previous Saudi executions as, quote, sham trials that violated international fair trial standards which relied on confessions extracted through torture. Unquote. Amnesty. Three men are currently on death row in Saudi Arabia for participating in anti-government protests. They should have known they were living in the land of 15,000 princes. Our freedom-loving friends in Saudi Arabia. And now, news of America's longest wars. American taxpayers have spent $6.4 trillion on wars after 9-11 and military action in the Middle East and Asia, according to a new study. The total is $2 trillion more than the entire federal government's spending 
during the last fiscal year. But that, you know, that's a lot of other stuff. The report from the Watson Institute of International and Public Affairs at Brown University also finds that more than 800,000 people have died as a direct result of the fighting, more than 335,000 of them civilians, another 21 million displaced due to violence. The 6.4 trillion figure reflects the cost across the federal government since the price of America's wars is not borne by the Defense Department alone. According to Nita Crawford, the author of the study, the post-9-11 wars in Iraq, Afghanistan, Pakistan, and Syria have expanded to more than 80 countries, becoming a truly global war on terror. So we, we meant what we said. The longer the wars drag on, of course, more and more service members will ultimately claim veterans' benefits and disability payments. Sorry to startle you there. Blame Mr. Tchaikovsky. Even if the United States withdraws completely from the major war zones by the end of 2020 and halts the other global war on terror operations, in the Philippines and Africa, for example, the total budgetary burden of the post-9-11 wars will continue to rise as the U.S. pays the ongoing costs of veterans' care and for interest on borrowing to pay for the wars. We borrowed to pay for the what? In March, the Pentagon estimated that the wars on, in Afghanistan, Iraq, and Syria have cost each American taxpayer $7,623 through a couple of fiscal years ago. So pay up, won't you? And the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction, whose reports we've been sharing with you on this broadcast. Through the years, he told Congress this week that U.S. officials have routinely lied to the public during the 18-year war by exaggerating progress reports and inflating statistics to create a false appearance of success. Quote, there's an odor of mendacity. Well, that's what I'm smelling. Throughout the Afghanistan issue, mendacity and hubris. That's a quote from John F. Sopko, the uh, Special Inspector General testifying before the House Foreign Affairs. The problem is there is a disincentive really to tell the truth. We have created an incentive to almost require people to lie. As an example, Sopko said U.S. officials have lied in the past about the number of Afghan children enrolled in schools, a key marker of progress touted by the Obama administration, even though, quote, they knew the data was bad. Well, bad data is better than... He said also that U.S. officials falsely claim major gains in Afghanistan life expectancy that were statistically impossible to achieve. 150 years, really? In addition, Sopko criticized the Trump administration for classifying information that shows the war is going badly. Well, otherwise, we'd know... Oh, including data on Afghan troop casualties and assessments of the Taliban's strength. Quote, when we talk about mendacity, when we talk about lying, it's not just lying about a particular program, it's lying by omissions. It turns out that everything that is bad news has been classified for the last few years, unquote. Since 2001, the United States has spent more than $132 billion to modernize Afghanistan, more than it spent, adjusted for inflation, to rebuild Europe after World War II. And look at Europe. The House Foreign Affairs Committee uh, brought Sopko in to testify after the Washington Post published the Afghanistan papers, which revealed how senior U.S. officials failed to tell the truth about the war. 
making rosy pronouncements they knew to be false and hiding unmistakable evidence the conflict had become unwinnable. Thank goodness we didn't go through this before, about a generation earlier. Otherwise, we, you'd think we were gullible or, 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 or stupid or something. The Pentagon paper, sorry, the Afghanistan papers were based on hundreds of confidential interviews that the special, Investi- uh, special inspector general conducted with key figures in the war. He had used the interviews to publish reports called Lessons Learned About Policy Failures in Afghanistan, but the reports from him left out the harshest and most frank criticisms and omitted the names of more than 90% of the people who were interviewed. The Post got that stuff under a Freedom of Information Act request. Damn Freedom of Information. <laughs> Several lawmakers said they were shocked by revelations in the Afghanistan papers, shocked by gambling in the establishment, including blunt admissions from generals, ambassadors, and White House officials that they didn't know what they were doing in Afghanistan and that the war strategy was fundamentally flawed. If this was Saudi Arabia, people who said that in advance would have been in jail all this time. One good reason to be glad that we're not in Saudi Arabia, I guess. I'm sure there are more. Um, But now, ladies and gentlemen, news of the bees. We've been telling you for quite some time that the um, decline in the population, specifically of honeybees, who are uh, known pollinators. We saw them pollinating just the other day. There's, there's, there's plenty of tape of them pollinating. Got to stop that pollinating. So uh, the stopping of the bees by uh, killing them off was being blamed on neonicotinoid pesticides. Well, in October of last year, a European Union commission recommended that the EU not renew authorization for the use of thiaclopred. That's a neonicotinoid made by Bayer, or we call it Bayer, but it's German, so they call it Bayer. Bayer, Bayer, let's call the whole thing neonicotinoids. This week, the EU officially declined to renew approval, which is the way the EU bans things, according to Modern Farmer. The, um, after April 30th, farmers in EU member nations will not be allowed to use thiaclopred, according to Reuters, but EU members will have until August to withdraw their authorization, and there's a grace period until next February. So bees, you have grace to still die. Neonics, modern farmer explains, are roughly similar to nicotine, hence the name work by triggering responses in the nervous systems of insects, usually killing them. It's often sold as a coating on seeds to protect against aphids. It's the most commonly used in the United States on cotton and fruits like apples and pears. But the EU, following a study last year, decided to completely prohibit its use due to concerns over its role in bee deaths as well as water contamination and human health. Oh, that... Various studies have found that theaclopid may cause serious problems for honeybees. Honeybee queens, in one study, were found to be severely immunocompromised after exposure. That's almost as bad as uh, one of the queen's sons hiding off to Canada, hiding off to Canada. The latest in the string of neonicotinoid bans in Europe, 
Two years ago, they banned three of the most popular neonics. And it's another blow to Bayer, which is attempting to defend itself from lawsuits aimed at Monsanto, which Bayer bought two years ago. Monsanto's most important product, glyphosate, has been the subject of thousands of lawsuits alleging that the pesticide causes cancer. So, um, let's, uh, let's count this as one victory for the bees, shall we? And you know the United States Army Corps of Engineers was found guilty by uh, two university-based research teams in the in the um, failure of the hurricane protection system in more than 53 locations in New Orleans in 2005. Now, the New York Times reports the same Army Corps of Engineers is studying five options to protect New York as storms become more frequent and destructive on a warming earth. Proposals have sparked fierce debate in New York. The most costly option is a barrier miles from Manhattan's coast, one in the outer New York harbor, out of sight, and therefore out of mind. It, It really... Some people say it would be the best solution for protecting the most people, properties, and landmarks, including the Statue of Liberty from a storm surge swelling the east and Hudson Rivers without cutting off the city from its waterfront. Advocates are attracted to the prospect of an enormous barrier that would protect much of the region. They also say that uh, more locally tailored onshore solutions like BAMES would likely protect wealthy areas first, not the low-income communities that suffered disproportionately from Sandy in 2012. And yet it was the low-income communities that suffered most from the Corps' protection and the failure thereof in 2005. A barrier like this has alarmed many resilience planning and environmental experts who say it is an oversimplified myopic concept that does not attempt to address several major climate threats and could even make things worse. The Corps' barrier designs aim to address only storm surges. They would not counter two other climate-related threats, flooding from high tides and storm runoff, and they could trap sewage and toxins inside the barriers, which would threaten the nascent ecological revival of New York's waterways. Let them try. That's their motto. United States Army Corps of Engineers.
From London, England, this is Le Show. And now, ladies and gentlemen, News of the Godly. This is about a former Catholic priest in France, Bernard Prenat. I don't, I don't write these names, ladies and gentlemen. I just read them. Prenat, P-R-E-Y. On trial for sexually abusing, do, sexually abusing dozens of Boy Scouts in the 1970s and 1980s. He said he warned the Catholic Church about his sexual impulses, but they failed to take appropriate measures. It's a damn church. When I was 14 years old during my junior seminary, I already knew that I was attracted to little boys. People told me, you are sick, but they got rid of me. They sent me to another seminary, Prenot told his uh, court on the second day of his trial. He could face up to 10 years in prison, but he claims that his sexual inclinations did not prevent him from being ordained, ordained. They should have helped me. They let me become a priest instead. After he had undergone therapy at a psychiatric hospital in 1967 and 8. Over the years, he explained during confession that some of his actions and impulses had been clearly presented as sins, but the priest would just encourage me not to do it again and would then absolve me, he said. People mentioned the word disease many times, but they never showed me a way out of it, he said, while being careful to stress. I'm not accusing the church. I'm not using it as an excuse. Unquote. After being convicted in 2016, he said he didn't think about taking up therapy again. He assured the court he had stopped abusing children in the early 1990s by sheer strength of will after he made a promise to the cardinal. Ten plaintiffs have been brought to trial. Many of the other cases are past the statute of limitation. The uh, allegations against Prenat, or Prena, he was defrocked last summer, saw the cardinal, Cardinal Philippe Barbarin, handed a six-month suspended sentence for covering up the acts of the pedophile priest. Suspended, ladies and gentlemen, you know, for... Bad behavior. News of the Godly. Copyrighted feature of this broadcast. I'm going to go off mic for just the merest moment. And I'm back. It's a new studio, ladies and gentlemen. We're figuring it out. It's got all the mod cons. <laughs> and the modern conveniences, too. Um, now, to the big story in the United States, of course, the pending trial of the impeached <laughs> President Trump. Um, the the uh, trial in the Senate, if such it be, it, it be a Senate, no, I mean the trial. Uh, the subjunctive applies to the trial. Senate gets the uh, indicative. Uh, uh, th- that begins Tuesday, as you know, and um, the debate that's raging now, if, it's, if raging it be, is whether the uh, Senate should call witnesses and uh, subpoena documents, subpoena witnesses and documents to um, 
supplement the record that was uh, amassed by the House Judiciary Committee in formulating the articles of impeachment. A lot of new information has been pouring out, interestingly, much of it because judges have allowed it uh, suddenly. Uh, See, for example, the, the material from Lev Parnas, who was one of the Ukrainians being used by uh, Rudy Giuliani in that uh, somewhat off-the-books plan to get the uh, Ukrainian president to announce, not necessarily carry out, but announce an investigation of Vice President Joe Biden and his son Hunter and uh, his role as a board member of the Ukrainian gas company. Um, Also coming out, of course, mentioned this last week on the broadcast, um, unredacted versions of emails which had already been released but it got unredacted recently. I don't think we know exactly how. Maybe uh, whiting out the black. Anyway, the uh, president... (laughs) Did I say that? The president announced uh, late in the week uh, he was adding two people to uh, his defense team. One was Alan Dershowitz, who was one of the attorneys working on uh, getting an extremely lenient deal for disgraced financier Jeffrey Epstein uh, when he was convicted of soliciting prostitution, prostitution in Florida. And the other person added to the Trump defense team this week, by total coincidence, was Kenneth Starr, who was also involved in um, helping to get Jeffrey Epstein an extremely lenient sentence in that uh, Florida case. These, these nutty coincidences, coincidences, ladies and gentlemen, they just keep happening and they make, make my teeth rattle. Um, that's, uh, that's the long version. Here's the short version. This week, as never before, it's nut-cutting time. And for the businessman turned chief executive, the nuts aren't falling far from the tree. Ken. Ken Starr. Whoever thought, right? Well, especially after you called me, uh, what, a, a, a lunatic back then? Hey, everybody was doing that. I go with the flow. That's one of my things. But, you know, I wanted real lunatics on my team this time. The guys from the house, Jim Jordan, Doug Collins, real pit bulls with very advanced rabies, right? (laughs) Turtleneck Mitch says no. Too divisive. But that's my brand, too divisive. (laughs) So we settled on you and the other guys. Well, Dershowitz is his own kind of pit bull, of course. Yeah, but he's not really on the team. I mean, he's testifying. Well, he's not a witness. I thought the plan was... No witness. Right, 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 right. He's not witness testifying. He's just distinguished lawyer dropping by testifying. That happens, right? Well, that's one of the things we'll have to work on. By the way, I, I'm going to need all the files to help prepare the defense. You got him. Mick says you got him. If Mick says you got him, you got him. I, I, I got a little packet of news stories and clips. That's it. That's all you need, Really. Just read the Lou Dobbs show transcripts. It's all there. He does the talking points like it's memorized or something. He's just the real Van Dyke Clyburn of the teleprompter. 
Sir, I'm going to need more than that. The, the Clinton people came into their trial with wheelbarrows full of stuff going all the way back to Whitewater. You know, there are days when I wish we had stuck to that stupid land deal. Are you crazy? It wasn't until people saw Bill Clinton's taste in women that the bloom really came off the rose by any name. Mm. But look, Ken, this isn't a trial. This is a hoax. You don't do a hoax the way you do a trial, right? Well... I'll help you out. The answer is no, sir. No, Mr. President, you don't. Remember that for the next time. All right, sir. So the basis of our response to the House accusations is to quote Lou Dobbs? Yeah. Quoting Hannity is too obvious. It'll give him the big head, too. So your task this week is get this thing over by Friday. Well, we don't start till Tuesday. Right. So you get a nice cushion, right? Well, I wouldn't... Don't be like a bonehead general, right? Yes, sir. I don't think my job on the team is to change him. So I, I guess that's my good fortune. Mitch. I have to say, in spite of myself, I'm, you know, I'm not a particularly excitable fellow, but uh, I'm, I'm starting to feel excited. Yeah. Can't tell by looking at you. What size suit do you wear? Extra freaking large? I. I'm kidding, Mitch. Don Rickles is dead. This is as good as it gets. <laughs> Yes, sir. I, I imagine you're a little excited, too. I feel like I did when Apprentice went to two-hour special episodes. Hmm. You know, it's not the greatest thing in the world, impeachment, even hoax impeachment. But still, only three people, ever. Yes, sir. Now, uh, we're still on our fast-track schedule. Great. Because I have a rally a week from Tuesday, and I want to give it my but, full... Uh, but a few members of my caucus... Not many, mind you, but enough to be of some concern. Not a lot of concern, but... Will you get on with it? They're watching the unredacted emails coming out. And then this Parnas person... Who I don't know. Like, from Adam, I don't know him. But these members are wondering if there's more of this stuff coming out. It makes it just... You know, a teeny squinch harder for them to hold the line on no witnesses. Hey, listen. You know me, Mitch. I'd like nothing more than to get Sleepy Joe on the stand and hammer him with questions about the whole hairy leg deal. But... But we agreed that no witnesses... Right. Makes for a tighter show. So? So my members, just a few of them... Not a lot. Come on, spit it out. ...are wondering how much more of this kind of stuff is just about to come out. I, I do have to give them some clarity on that, some reassurance that we're not marching them into a sinkhole. Oh, they wouldn't like that. <laughs> no, sir, especially the ones up for... You know what I wouldn't like, Mitch? Hmm? Being so-called supported by a bunch of gray-haired weenies who are scared of getting their shins muddy? I wouldn't like a Senate majority leader who can't frighten those weenies into following the plan. Am I supposed to be a freaking fortune teller, Mitch? No, no, sir. Like I can know when Nancy Pelosi and her hoax people are planning to unveil the next chapter of their hoax? Uh, no, sir. But I guess what I'm asking is if you've been in contact with any more of these Ukrainian folks with lawyers. Mitch, your members are your team. All of them. Yes, sir. They start getting shaky legs. It's your task this week to kick them in the knees until they stand up straight, right? I suppose that's one way of putting it. As far as I'm concerned, Mitch, 
That's the only way of putting it. Right? Very good point. New teams, new tasks, same mission. We're going to make impeachment great again. Now, the world is his boardroom. The president is this week. You've got to watch because there's nothing to see here. And now, ladies and gentlemen, the apologies of the week. For this week, how timely. We're so sorry. Just worked out that way. The National Archives wrote in a uh, tweet this week, we made a mistake. As the National Archives of the United States, we're 
and always have been completely committed to preserving our archival holdings without alteration. No alterations. Just like my dry uh, um, In an elevator lobby promotional display for our current exhibit on the, 18th, uh, on the 19th Amendment, we obscured some words on protest signs in a photo of the 2017 Women's March, they continue. This photo was not an archival record held by the archives, but one we licensed to use as a promotional graphic. Nonetheless, we were wrong to alter the image. We've removed the current display and will replace it as soon as possible with one that uses the unaltered image. We apologize and will immediately start a thorough review of our exhibit policies and procedures so that this does not happen again. The uh, protest signs that they altered were signs that were critical <laughs> President Trump. Deadline Memphis, the city of Memphis continues to work to clear a backlog of lawn debris pickup, some of which has been out in the streets since Thanksgiving. And while some residents say progress has been made, others tell us, tell WMC TV, city crews need to move faster. Memphis Mayor Jim Strickland started his weekly update this weekend with the words, I apologize. He, he vowed to resolve the lingering issues with leaf and lawn debris collection. He said weather is to blame, as all the leaves this autumn fell at once, and a warm December lent them to being bagged. I have no idea what that means. You have to ask the mayor. The family that owns a pizzeria in Eatontown, New Jersey, has issued an apology to a delivery driver in the town's community after the driver filed a discrimination lawsuit saying a manager unleashed an anti-Semitic and racist rant referencing Hitler when the employee asked to take a Jewish holiday off. The manager at Maurizio's has been fired, and the restaurant does not condone the actions of any employee that mistreats or disrespects any customer or employee. The uh, family, the Schiandicola family, said in a statement, they're the uh, owners, they were in Italy for three weeks when news of the lawsuit broke, stunned to return to the negative publicity. We'd like to be clear, the single actions of this employee in no way reflect the beliefs and the values of the owners of Maurizio's. More importantly, we would like to apologize to Mr. Bogan and his family for any hardship or offense that these events have caused the family. That's Nicholas Bogan, a 17-year-old high school student who had recently started working as a delivery person for the eatery. He'd asked the manager take the first night off of Rosh Hashanah. The manager, Francesco Scott Di Rinaldi, responded with a string of obscene, hateful, and bizarre anti-Semitic and racist comments, according to the lawsuit. But that's a lawsuit. NBC News, uh, sorry, NBC Sports hockey analyst, Jeremy, I'll be with you in a moment. Jeremy Rennick posted a video saying he's apologized to his fellow broadcasters about inappropriate comments he made about them. Quote, I never meant to offend anyone, and I definitely went too far, and for that, I deeply regret it. He said in a 40-second video on his Twitter account, he said he reached out and apologized to fellow hockey broadcasters, Catherine Tappan, Patrick Sharp, and Anson Carter for his comments. He said they graciously accepted his apology. Graciously? Doesn't sound like hockey to me. Dateline Miami in the 11th Circuit. Government prosecutors at long last uttered the word sorry in open court to victims of Jeffrey Epstein's underage sex ring after years of refusing to apologize for keeping those victims in the dark about that deal that protected Epstein from federal charges. The apology was issued during a Thursday morning appellate proceeding in Miami, attended by one victim who says Epstein sexually 
abused her at his mansion when she was 14 years old. She and her lawyers were in court to challenge a federal judge's decision to preserve the 2007 deal, which gave Epstein and his assistants immunity from federal sex crime charges in South Florida. Never too late, Department, I guess. Dateline London, UK Minister of Defense, Johnny Mercer. He's accentuating the positive, isn't he? He's issued an apology to lesbian, gay, and bisexual service members who were reportedly outed by military chaplains. He issued the apology at an event recognizing the anniversary of the repeal of the UK ban of homosexual members of the military. Our policy regarding LGB members in the military was unacceptable then, and as a defense minister, I personally apologize for those experiences, he said. Dayline Westbrook, Maine, Superintendent Peter Lancia, apologized last week for a lapse in protocol that resulted in a pre-kindergartner being left off a school bus during an evacuation of Sakarapa School because of a gas leak. The uh, school was, uh, that, well, that is extremely upsetting to me as a parent and educator and superintendent, Lancia said, something I never want to happen again. The school was evacuated and closed for the day after a snowbank put pressure on a gas pipe and the pipe cracked. The leak was discovered before the start of the day. Students already there were bused to the middle school to be picked up by their parents, but one pre-K student was left on the bus. Appears the student didn't recognize the people outside of their bus. They're used to seeing their teachers when they get dropped off. But it's our protocol. The emergency team brings the students in the building during these situations. He didn't see his teacher who was already in the middle school and didn't leave the bus. He was brought back to the garage where the driver then locked the bus and left. Child was reported missing, found within an hour. They're changing the protocol to prevent this from happening again, requiring bus drivers to check their buses after each run as opposed to the end of the shift. That'll lure. A review commissioned by the Archdiocese of Anchorage found credible evidence of sexual misconduct by 14 people who served in the Archdiocese dating to 1966, a church leader announced this week. Findings were made by a commission. Half of those identified as credibly accused are now dead, the report states. The bishop says, there are no words that can restore the innocence that was cruelly and unjustly stolen from you, according to the victims. It's with humility, sorrow, and shame that I apologize to you, your family, friends, and community in the name of the church for the grievous harm you have suffered, the bishop, Andrew Belisario, said. Former Houston Astros manager A.J. Hinch released a statement on Monday after he was fired by the team owner for his role in the team's sign stealing. Can't do that in baseball, eh? Hinch apologized for failing to stop the players and expressed regret in being connected to what happened. Twitter has apologized for allowing advertisements to be micro-targeted at certain users, such as neo-Nazis, homophobes, and other hate groups. BBC discovered the issue and prompted the tech firm to act. Like many social media companies, Twitter creates detailed profiles of its users by collecting data on the things they post, like watch and share. Advertisers can take advantage of this by using its tools to select their campaign audience from a list of characteristics, like parents of teenagers or amateur photographers or neo-Nazis. Twitter, sorry about that. They won't do that again. Lest I go into a fake falsetto one more time. 
Michigan lawmaker reportedly apologized this week after a reporter said the state senator told her a group of boys could have a lot of fun with her. State Senator Peter Lucido, Republican, told the reporter he could speak to her for a story after he was done honoring a group of students from an all-boys school. You should hang around. You could have a lot of fun with these boys, or they could have a lot of fun with you, he told the reporter. Allison Donahue, according to her report of the conversation. Lucido initially told the Detroit Free Press his comments were being taken out of context, and he did not believe he owed the reporter an apology. He later issued a short statement apologizing for his comments, according to the AP. The Transportation Security Administration is apologizing apologizing to a Native American woman after she was reportedly humiliated by an agent during a security screening at Minneapolis-St. Paul Airport. Tara Huska, an attorney and indigenous rights activist, said she was traveling back to Bemidji, Minnesota, needed to um, have her braids patted down, according to the agent. The agent then proceeded to pull them behind her shoulders, laugh and say, giddy up, as he snapped her braids like rains. Huska tweeted, my hair is part of my spirit. I am a native woman. I am angry, humiliated. Federal Security Director of TSA in Minnesota acknowledged the mistake in an email to fellow employees, said the agency must learn from this. Federal Security Director Cliff Van Leuven said he apologized to Huska for how she was treated. The TSA has launched an investigation into the incident. A Democrat challenging Representative Emanuel Cleaver of Missouri in this year's primary has apologized for incorrectly accusing the incumbent of having a picture of disgraced comedian Bill Cosby under his desk. The uh, candidate said it showed uh, Cosby, but uh, Cleaver was uh, keeping a picture in his desk of Al Jarreau. The Apologies of the Week, ladies and gentlemen. It is a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. Yeoman work this week by Adrian Bodnam, our friend here at Global Radio in London. He was master, master of the of the new studio, in which I'm I'm happy to be broadcasting. Don't get me wrong. And that is the end of this broadcast or podcast. Another version next week, same time on the radio, whenever you want it. 
on your audio device of choice. And it would be like having Adrian push the buttons every week. If you'd agree to be with me then, well, you already thank you very much. Uh-huh. A tip of the show chapeau to the San Diego desks. Only one desk. And to Pam Halstead and to Thomas Walsh at WWNO New Orleans for help with today's broadcast. The email address for this program, playlist of the music here on your chance to get Cars I Talk t-shirts, my goodness, all at harryshearer.com. And I'm on Twitter, at the Harry Shearer. How did I get that? I must be verified. The show comes to you from Century of Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans flagship station of the Changes Easy Radio Network. So long from London Town.